GalaxyCon Live is the place for you to hear about fandom from the celebrities who bring geek culture to life. Welcome, friends and fans, to another episode of GalaxyCon Live, where we are bringing the convention experience directly to you. And today, we are going back to the Great Valley by way of the Dragon's Lair through Ellis Island and the Promise of America, and much, much more with today's guest. So without further ado, let us bring out today's honored guests. He is a director, animation animator, production designer, video game designer, animation instructor, instructor, and author whose career includes a multitude of animation classics, including, but absolutely not limited to, The Secret of Nim, An American Tale, The Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Anastasia, Titan AE, and the games that ate a million quarters in the 80s, Dragon Slayer and Space Ace. Please welcome back Mr. Tom Bluth. Wow, that, that was a great intro. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know what? It's good to be here. And I really, really enjoyed talking to uh, people who are out there with dreams, <clears throat> people out there trying to make something happen in their own lives. So I'm, I'm very thrilled to be here. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> oh, I'm absolutely glad to have you back. You know what? I've been in pretty good health, actually. You know, I keep looking at the years, and when they say that when you're an octogenarian, which I am now, I'm 84. When you get there, things start falling apart, and I keep waiting for that to happen, but it's not happened yet. So I've got my fingers crossed, and I think everything's going to be okay. I had a premonition the other day, probably just a dream when I was asleep, that I was 98 on a cane. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. Right now, though, the creative juices are still flowing around. I just wrote I just wrote a book. Yes, Maybe. you did. I did. <laughs> yes, and you did. it took me about a year and a half to write it, but I try to remember all the wonderful things that have happened to me in my life. Because I think from the time that you're just a child, right up to your present day, all those things that happen to you form what is your character and your dreams. So I try to put it all down in print and say, okay, here's a book you can understand. And maybe you'll, you'll ask fewer questions because there's a lot answered in that book. And I, and I call it something you'll recognize the name somewhere out there, my animated life. So it's Don Blue somewhere out there. It is mm -hmm. somewhere out there. My animated life. And who's that young guy there? <laughs> he looks familiar. Just a few of the characters that that have been really dear to me, and so we put them on the cover. Absolutely. And uh, this is available for pre-order now on Amazon, and has a release date of July of 2022 next year. That's right. I believe it's coming out on the 19th, somewhere around there, the latter part of that month in July. That's right. Yeah. And you know what I'm interested in? I don't know whether I've made a big mess at writing a book or not. <clears throat> I did major in English. But if you really like the book and it gives you something, pick up the, the computer and write me, a, write me a letter. Write me a letter. I'd like to see that. And I'll figure out how to answer you back. <laughs> well, there you go. I... Wow, so you majored in English. Uh, you made an entire career off of animation and art, and but you majored in English. That's an interesting yeah. irony of your life cycle, isn't it? <laughs> but you know what, though? We had a professor uh, that would come into class every day, and he'd go up to the blackboard well, and turn his back to the whole class, and right on the blackboard, he'd say, literature will illuminate your life. Now, he did it every day. And so we being foolish students, we used to mock him as he did that. He couldn't see us, but we would mouth the words. But in, in years following that experience, I remember that, wow, it did come true. Because in making movies, literature was really the foundation that gave me a lot of ideas. You know, and, and the hero's journey that we all know about. All of that was in those literary books. And, and I'm ashamed to admit this to you guys, but when I got out of high school, 
I was a farm boy and I hadn't read one book cover to cover. So when I went to college and it was a choice between going to the art world, you know, and, and me and let them teach me art, which I already knew. So let me teach me art or whether to go to the English department, which I knew nothing. And that turned out to be a great blessing because I learned a lot of things in the English department. Great, great, great study. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I always said not knowledge, knowledge is knowledge is going to be enriching in whatever form it is, uh, visual, auditory or on the printed page. And I'm so glad that uh, I'm so I'm so excited for this project. And it's it's another feather in your cap, another another form of media for you to, to, to take part in. And I am really looking forward to uh, hearing these recollections that you've got encased in it. Yeah, I, I've tried to keep it somewhat humorous because I think just the details of animation, some some people, the community might get a little bored with that. So I've told you a lot of a lot of stories about that moved me and made things happen. Like what happened at my ninth grade junior prom? Who was the girl? And all that kind of thing. You know, it's very, very exciting. <laughs> I'm amazed that I went through all of that and survived it. But it was it was good. And anyway, I think it's interesting also that when I got out of high school, I hadn't read a book. And suddenly, you know, I get to my own age and I write a book. Wow. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Don, looking at your, your your entire career, I don't think anything is weird or surprising. <laughs> well, thank you. I think that's a compliment. That is a compliment. That, that, is, that is one of the best compliments I think I could give anyone. Because, and again, you, you, you have been a wonderful storyteller. You have just, you have breathed uh, life into these characters. Adaptions from mm -hmm. Mrs. Brisbane, The Secret of Nim, to, to classics, to science fiction, to everything on else. You've just, you've, you've given, you've, your whole life, you've been given us a gift continuously and and I, and I i thank you for your talents and i thank you for the professionalism and i thank you for your body of work well thank you thank you let me add one thing to anybody who is aspiring to to draw who wants to pick up a pencil and draw and nowadays you have to find some place to do that but drawings can be one of two things drawings can be they can be kind of doodles on a page or they can even look like a model sheet but unless your drawing is a symbol that represents a human emotion, it's soulless. So really important for me is that when I look at people's drawings and everything, I can tell when it's just simply a dead drawing that they drew out of someplace. It's a copy or something like that. But if it comes from the heart and it represents a feeling that they have, the drawing usually springs right off the page, you know, and that's the excitement. That's where it's really fun to watch. Anyway, I get a kick out of that because in teaching the university now, and we have about 21 kids in the class right now, and I'm amazed at their talent. They are so good, so good. And, you know, I think I go in there thinking, well, I'm going to help them learn. I go, no, 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 Don, look at them. They're really good already at their age and everything, much better than I was. So I have great hopes for what's going to happen. And most people will ask at some point, well, is 2D animation going to return? Is that going to happen again? And I always say, well, maybe, but I think it's going to be someone will make a motion picture that will make a lot of money. And then I think the ears will go up and people will say, yeah, 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 let's make more of those. It makes money. So I think that will happen again. So I would say hopefully there are three areas, though, still today that you can earn your living in the 3D world, drawing with a pencil.
One of them is background uh, with, with layouts, just making great layouts. The yeah. computer's not going to do that. The other one is designing characters, right? So that's really good. The other one is my favorite, storyboard. Yeah. Storyboard is like directing the picture. It's like directing. You have to say, where's the lighting? Where's the camera placed? What, what's the character doing? I mean, there's a lot of things. It's like a director does in live action. I... Yeah, I, I no, no. I, I was going to say, I, I, I adore seeing, I adore seeing storyboards for for films that I've come to adore. I love seeing the evolution. I love seeing, oh wow, that I, I love seeing how it was it was exacted upon. I love seeing how oh they went in a different direction inspired by this. So yeah, there is, it's a very I think it's a very undervalued in the public eye. I think professionally everybody is certainly uh, aware and gives deference to storyboarding, but I think it's still something that's ephemeral to people outside outside of the hardcore fans yeah i found that really it takes a little bit of practice there as anything any skill or talent you have to develop it and fertilize it and make it grow and i believe that with storyboarding which is my favorite that's where you decide what the picture looks like what it feels like what its message is everything and it's translating translating from a brilliant script hopefully you're translating that into pictures and that's a big responsibility Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't we, I'm told we're good to go on our audience questions, so I say let's go ahead and just dive right on in. Okay, uh, All just... right. And here's one from Dante. Oh, what was your favorite cartoon character growing up? Oh, oh, wow. Growing up, my favorite cartoon character. Well, you know, when I was growing up, there were characters you may not recognize today. I used to go to a theater in town because I'd been on a farm. So I'd go into town and watch Saturday morning cartoons in the theater, not on a TV set. Yep. There was no TV. So anyway, there was a little character called Little Lulu. Ah. I enjoyed watching those. And there were other characters too that I really, really liked. I always loved the Popeye, the Popeye things, which by the way, I hadn't thought of this before, but the Popeye furnished a lot of ideas for Dragon's Lair. Really, because watching that little guy, you know, who is, is he's mighty, he has all that, except that he fumbles everything, and so does Dirk. So, yeah. you know, it was, it was kind of fun. So I loved Popeye, and uh, I had, I'll talk about this in the book, you know, but I had a horse named Flash. I would ride him into town, tie him to a tree, so he would stay there. And then I'd go see these cartoons on Saturday morning. My favorites, of course, were the Disney cartoons, which were features. You know, and, and coming out of those, I mean, I was on cloud nine and all the way back home, about three miles or so. I would talk to Flash, ask him questions, you know, just things a dumb kid would do. I asked him questions and, and said, do you think I could ever be something like that? Could I actually animate like I just saw on the screen? And when, when he talked to me, of course, he would whinny. That meant yes. If he farted, that meant no. So... I got a lot of uh, whinnies when I asked questions like that. He was my mentor for a while. He's the one who talked to me. There, there you go. There you go. Were you ever into the, uh, was the cartoon area, that whole Bijou area where you would get like the whole experience? Were there any movie serials that you liked, the cliffhangers? I wasn't too much in cliffhangers because on the ride back home, I would say, well, what? Why they left me hanging up in the air? So it wasn't real great on serials. And notice that in my own career, I very, I, I stay clear away from sequels. Not real big on sequels because usually, you know, you said your piece, you had the punchline in the first movie, so leave it alone. But the money people, of course, see it differently, so. 
Yeah, yeah, very true. There you go. Dante, great question to start us off with. Thank you. And here's one from Jessica M. What was it like working on Sleeping Beauty as the look was so unique? Oh, wow. You know what? I remember I was there for about a year and a half of Sleeping Beauty. And I remember that at the talk around the whole studio was we're finally figuring out how animation should work. <laughs> really? You're finally figuring out. And it had everything to do with design. So even though they 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 animated the characters in rough, very much with the old style, so it was very soft and all that kind of thing, when they cleaned it up, it turned into a very angular, designy look. And yet at the same time, I kept saying, well, the story, you know, the heck with the design, because that's really important. But at the same time, if you're not telling a great story that captures people's hearts, then it seems to me the ordinary public is not going to be intrigued by design. So the animators will be and the artists will be. And so it was a big deal. And everyone talked about how we were changing the face of animation. And surely Ivan Earl's backgrounds were very, very different. In fact, notice in Sleeping Beauty, his backgrounds were so beautiful and so detailed and everything. The only way they could get the characters to show up with paint would to paint them with paint box colors like orange, green, blue. That was really very uh, strong yeah. because Ivan Earl's backgrounds were absolutely brilliant. And they hung them up in the in the hallways of the Disney studio so everybody could pray by and see what was going on. And we knew we knew that that picture being widescreen with all those backgrounds that it was going to you know take the world by, with astonishment. We would see something new we hadn't seen before. Much different than the Silly Symphonies. Much different yeah. than even Fantasia. So the whole thing was an eye-opener for me because I was only 18 at the time. What do I know? But I listened. Yeah. And listening to all the talk around the studio, what I got was we are opening the door to something brand new. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which has definitely stood the test of time as, as one of the Disney classics. Jessica, great question. Thank you so much for that. And here's one Daniel. Hmm. Do you own any, I'll say, uh, memorabilia, any animation memorabilia or, or anything else? And if so, what is the pride of your collection? You know, <laughs> I'm going to disappoint you with that question. I can tell you. I really, once I have participated in the production of a picture, we'll say Secret of Nim, I never go back and look at it. Because what happens with me is that each scene that I look at is a memory of the animator I worked with to get that scene to happen. So I can't look at the picture objectively. So I just skip the experience. I, I think what I've learned over the over the years, though, with all pictures, is that I don't even collect the artwork. I see other people collect it, and I say, why are they collecting this? I don't understand it. So the joy for me is in creating the picture and making it work and making people love to see it. That's the joy for me. In fact, if you came to my house, you would find out that I don't even have many pictures hanging on the wall of my own artwork. So I, I think it's just something that, but wait a minute, I had an experience not too long ago where I was in Texas, El Paso, Texas, which is where I was born. And we, they were showing the secret of Nim there. And I said, okay, so I thought I would leave. I thought I would leave right after you know, we did the talk and everything. And I walked out and nobody knew where I was, but I turned back and looked at the screen where they were showing him. And I said, wow, that's quite beautiful. I didn't even recognize it because the, the memories had faded. So I sat down in the chair and watched a good piece of it. And I said, my, 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 who made that? That's really beautiful. And then I said, you made it, Don. Oh, I made that? 
Well, no, you didn't do it alone. You did it with a lot of people, you know, but still there was a sparkle about the, the movie that it was just brilliant for me to sit there and look at it. That was the first time I'd appreciated, you know, something on the screen. And there you have it. And Daniel, still a great question. Thank you for that. And from Jason, who inspired you in your career? Oh, wow. <laughs> you know what? There's been many, many heroes. And I, I suppose when I was a child, you know, my, my big, big hero was Santa Claus. You know, because it's just the whole idea of a man coming down a chimney, which we didn't have in our house. And all locked doors, they wouldn't be able to get in anyway. But that idea of Santa Claus and the idea of how it's mixed together with the nativity and all that kind of thing. And what we, everybody seems to become wonderful at Christmas time, you know, and they forget about their grudges and they pretend, if, if you will, that all is well. So that was the first one. And then when I saw my first movie, which was Snow White, and saw that animation, it was something I'd never seen before. And I said, well, Santa, you sit there, you take a back seat. Disney became the hero. And so I wanted to see anything that, that had his name on it. And <clears throat> I grew up in a family of a lot of boys. Most of them were baseball players, football players. And I was the artist, which was the weird one. So... Uh, I remember the first time I saw a picture of Walt Disney, I looked at him, I said, you know what? He doesn't look too effeminate. He looks like a real man. This may be hope. So I took his picture and hung it over my bed so that, you know, everybody leave me alone. Cause I got mocked a lot because I was always drawing and everybody else was out playing baseball. So a lot of them, then it changed over the years. I had people in, in the area of music that were, that were inspirational to me. So I got a lot of that. Then when I went to college, I went to BYU and, and then, the teachers there opened up that world of literature for me. And so again, I grew again. So I've had them all along the way. And God bless the teachers that impart to us all the things that they know. Otherwise, you know, we'd all be rediscovering the wheel. Very true. Very, very true. Jason, thank you. Great question. And what do we have next? From Amber. What made you and Gary Goldman decide to direct the movie Anastasia? Huh. <clears throat> well, let's see. We were in Ireland at the time, and uh, the student in Ireland was folding up. We knew that that was gonna, not going to continue, so we were coming home. We got a telephone call from the, the head of production at 20th Century Fox, and he says, I hear you're coming home. He says, how would you like to come back here and make some more animated films for 20th Century Fox? And we said, oh, yeah, that's good. Then the rumble started. Because Bill Mechanic, he said, okay, now I want to make an animated film about a girl who's rags to riches. And I don't want to do Annie Get Your Gun. And I don't want to do My Fair Lady. You know, so he said, but that's the theme. And the hunt began. And uh, for some reason, we settled on Anastasia, the little princess, you know, had been martyred, actually had been murdered. The whole family was killed. So I went back to Bill and I said, Bill, how in the world are we going to make a, an animated movie out of a tragedy like that? He said, well, one of the children we think probably escaped. And there was a woman named Anna Anderson who claimed that she was the lost princess Anastasia. So we read the book and uh, we began to just play around with it. And then more and more ideas came in. And it's about a princess who has lost her memory, who is lost, who's trying to go home. That is the theme of every movie I've ever made. Yeah. Trying to go back home. It was Fievel, you know, it was the little dinosaurs and Land Before Time. That's always the theme. 
you're hunting for family. I said, okay, we can do that movie. So we began, we went to, well, Gary Goldman, he went off to St. Petersburg to photograph the whole location and their customs, so do some research there. And we did as close as we could. Of course, we had people who write us letters and said, you know, this isn't it at all. Yeah. <laughs> we know, but this is a fantasy and we're just sort of playing this tune about a royal that got lost and had to search for a family. And it turned out to be pretty good, actually. Fox, though, Fox Studios put a lot of directors over the top of Gary and I, so we were constantly trying to sell the ideas to mm. them because they already had a certain way in which they made pictures. And so we, we fell victim to that kind of thing. But it wasn't long before, you know, we made friends of these people that came down from Los Angeles into Arizona and liked to tell us what to do. I had a, I had a great story. This is, a, this is kind of in the dark of the night, which is the musical number in Anastasia. Well, the, the poor writers, the composers wrote nine different songs and they couldn't get anyone to say which one was the right one. So Bill Mechanic brought in his, I think it was a 10-year-old daughter and said, which one of the songs do you like, my dear? <laughs> she selected Night of, Dark of the Night. So we had, they sent a lot of artists down from Los Angeles that says, employ these artists to make this movie. So I gave this, this problem. I gave this problem to one of the layout guys and said, you go ahead and storyboard this. So he did it and I watched him do it because that, that was my mandate. And, I watched him do it, and I knew that it was not going to work. Mm. But, I, but I couldn't do that. So we photographed it. We put sound effects with it. We put the music with it. We put it up on the screen. And Bill Mechanic flew down to Arizona and sat in the theater and looked at what was going to be the dark of the night. When the lights went up, he turned around to me. I was sitting behind him. He turned around to me, and he says, I haven't a clue what I just watched. It was just story sketches. you know. I said, I know. Neither do I. I said, but give me a couple of weeks and I'll fix it. So, I mean, it was fraught with all kinds of problems, but any kind of artistic endeavor, and you can write this down in your notebook, any kind of artistic endeavor means you're going to find opposition and you're going to find people who are fighting your ideas. Be wise enough to recognize a good idea and, and be friendly about that. And, but if you really believe in what your idea is, well, then, you know, push it. The best idea will survive. The best idea will survive. Okay. <laughs> well, you said write it down in the notebook. So. Amber, great question. And to those detractors you mentioned earlier that said that it was wrong, I would remind them the film also features an albino talking bat. So, yeah. <laughs> a well, yeah, that was the bat. And you know what? The bat became, for me, he became the star of the show because he, he was the clown. He was yeah. the funny guy. You know, and, and we had a, there's a story about that, too, where we had an actor come in and record the voice of, of the bat. We had him come in and do it. And then we took the voice back to Bill Mechanic, the president, and he said, not funny. So he said, go back and tell the actor to be funny. I said, "Ooh, I know who that actor is. He was not going to like that. But I went back and I told him, I said, he would like this, your reading to be a little more humorous. <clears throat> Well, the actor got very, very, very annoyed with the whole thing and started swearing at me and everything. And I said, well, it's not me. And, but anyway, Hank Azaria came up after that. Yeah. And Hank Azaria had the same lines, same script, everything, went in the room. I was in the sound booth at the time. 
And he started reading these lines like a stupid little bat. <laughs> and the people all around in the booth and out in there started laughing. I said, okay, we got it. Yeah. It's, it, it's Hank. He's, he's, he has got a wonderful gift for that, that kind of work. Oh, he's he wonderful. Really does. Multi-talented. Yeah. Yes. Very, very much so. Again, Amber, great question. Thank you for that one. And what do we have next? From Jack. Where did the story for all dogs go to heaven come from? <laughs> Strange question. You know what? When I was in the fourth grade, we had a teacher who would read stories to us. And one of them that she read to us was called All Dogs Go to Heaven. And I had had two dogs and, and lost dogs and all along. And so the idea that dogs went to heaven was in the delicious thought. So what happened was she read this story to us about all dogs go to heaven. So past time, go forward in time. And I'm in the studio now. And I said, I remember a great title, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Would you find the book for me? So somebody went and hunted for the book called All Dogs Go to Heaven. And we opened the book and started reading it. And it wasn't a story at all. It was an anthology of dogs. And I said, so what was that teacher doing? She was making up tales. As she sat there on the desk, she was making up a story. And we had no idea she was doing that. And sounded like she was reading it. I said, well, it's a great title. We're going to make up our own story. So that's how that happened. But wow, all dogs go to heaven. And at some point we had writers. We need to hire writers to get a good script. We thought, let's hire some writers. We hired two. They arrived on the airplane, one of them carrying his Oscar. I said, oh, that's trouble. (laughs) So anyway, he wrote a script. He and his companion wrote a script, and then they got on the plane and flew away. And I looked at the script, and it was no better than what we had done. So about that time, that very famous writer, Robert Town, was visiting Europe, and he stopped in Ireland, and he knocked at our door in that very moment. And I told him, I said, Robert, you know, we've been struggling with this story, All Dogs Go to Heaven, so we can't, we can't crack it. And he said, well, tell me your story, and you got five minutes to do that. So I did the best I could, and then he sighed, and he said, his response was, where's your, where's your men's room? And I said, oh, okay, it's just down the hall. So I went down there, and pretty soon he came back, and he said, okay, I've thought about it. Here's your story. And he dictated the story in about five minutes. Wow. And I thought, wow, what a gift. So easy for him to do that, you know, and we had just struggled and couldn't do it. He said, first of all, get rid of all that heaven. Too much heaven's going to make people very uneasy. He says, make it about the dog, Charlie. You know, and he just refuses to be done away with by a future gang, by a, a fellow gangster. He says, and he falls in love with a little girl that he's been using. He's been using to make money and everything. So when he falls in love with her, now he's got a conflict. Do I go on using her to make money or do I, since I love her, do I help her find a home? So anyway, he nailed the story for us, and, and the rest is just history. We knew what to do then. But during, during the make of all dogs, I don't know whether you're going to appreciate this story or not. The little girl, Judith Varsi, who spoke for, for the little girl in the, in the movie, for Marie, uh, Marie was her name? Yeah, Anna, Anna, Anna Marie. Anyway, spoke for her. She had some terrible tragedy that happened to her. Her father was as crazy as anyone can be. And he did something terrible. He went in and he shot the little girl while she was sleeping. He shot the mother. And then he went into the garage, set it on fire and shot himself. 
And when that happened, we had Anne-Marie's little voice, Judith Varsity's voice on all of our tape recorders throughout the whole studio. It stopped everything because we couldn't, we couldn't hear her voice anymore because of what we just heard. And that was one of the things that behind the scenes, behind the closed doors, there's so many of these little tragic things that go on that I've sort of kept inside. I just let one out, but this I kept inside. And when you get the book, by the way, I put a lot of them in the book so you can appreciate behind closed doors. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's. Yeah. That's, well, that brought everything down. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's it's no, it's it's this. This is a part of this is part of the entertainment world and everything else. There are there are some unfortunate tragedies and stuff, and it's good for people to be aware of this too, because especially when it comes to child performers. You know, to, to be aware that sometimes there are parents, stage moms, stage dads, and everything else like that. So, again, well, it's knowledge, Don, and, and knowledge is never, it will never cause harm. Well, I keep watching a lot of documentaries about famous stars that I've adored over the years. And my, all the things they went through, it's very, very hard. And I think what you have to do is if you're going to go into any kind of a fantasy world like animation or live action or anything like that, you have to, you have to be well-grounded. And if you are well grounded with something, you realize that, you know, when they close the stage door and they turn the lights off, you're on your own. And so you can't live with just fame. I mean, that's really nothing. And I think you can't live with in the world that is make-believe or fictitious. So if you have something, and I always had something in my life which grounded me very, very well. You know, my parents gave me a spiritual side of life. And so I, I clung to that. I clung to that. And everything I went through... I would always go back to, you know, my belief in God and everything. And that, that sustained me and it gave me strength. And, you know, through prayer and faith, I made a lot of things happen. Did you know that all the movies and I, I got to I got to direct 11 hand-drawn movies. And never in any of those experiences did I go out and look for the money to make those movies. It seemed like it just happened. And I know things don't just happen. So, you know, I've had an absolutely wonderful life. And being able to do that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, because I want to share with everybody that there, if you have a dream in your head, and I know each person that's living has a dream somehow, something. And, and you may think it's not even possible for you to make that dream come true. It's too big. I don't have enough money and I don't know how to do it. And Well, the excuses go on and on and on. But really, if you want to, you have to brave all the all the obstacles that'll be thrown at you to stop you. I think of the poor little salmon trying to swim back upstream and there's the bears, you know, and there's the current of the water and everything swim back upstream so they can mate. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're trying to find family again too. So it's the same thing. It's going to happen in your life. Metaphorically, it'll be there, but push on, push on. Don't give up. Absolutely. And there you go. Jack, great question. Thank you so much. And let's go ahead and take another question. Okay. And from Phil, do you have an all-time favorite Disney film? Oh, that was an easy question. Yeah. So uh, the first film I saw of Disney was Snow White. But when I went on and I looked at the pictures that were that were coming up after that, the one that affected me the most that I love, it's, it's a toss-up between two. One of them is Pinocchio which is a metaphor for life, you know, how to become real since you're made of wood. And that was me made of wood. So how do I get to be real? <laughs> and so the other one that for just sheer beauty was a whole new look 
you know, like Sleeping Beauty was a new look. Bambi was a new look. And it had painted backgrounds in oils. And they, they had to wait a long time for the oils to dry. But I mean, it's just this very, very beautiful, soft looking picture. And it's about a little boy trying to grow up. Yeah. You know, so it's a portrait picture, really. But that one, every time I look at that, you know, it's beauty. The story's wonderful, you know, about growing up. And then, of course, there's the great moment with Twitter painted where, you know, they're going to meet the opposite sex and they're going to fall in love and then everything falls apart. So that was one of my favorite parts in the movie. But it's just beautiful. But Pinocchio, for just sheer story and meaning in my own life and my own existence, I love that that one. And you know what? They were... <laughs> They were, here's another little anecdote. They were actually inking cells on on plastic that was flammable. What's that called? Oh, nitrate? Nitrate. Yeah, the nitrate cells were flammable. Yes. And so, you know what? It was taking a great risk because any moment they can either crumble or they can fall apart after a little time passes. But that was what they were doing. When I was at Disney Studio, this is uh, probably in 71. 1971, I remember going out to some barrels and these barrels were out on the back lot and they were filled with water. And in those barrels were these hundreds of Pinocchio cells pushed down in the water. Wow. And I went, what, what, what are you doing? You know, cause there's a way that you can put those between plastic and they won't explode. Yeah. But that was the moment that actually I pulled some out of there and just studied what they were. <laughs> the studio would not have adored that at all. They would have said, no, 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 no. Those are flammable. Keep them in the barrels. But anyway, when you see it, luckily we have it on film right now. And film is also being converted to something digital. So, you know, the colors will remain and nobody's going to go up and fire. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. And it's pretty trepidatious back then, too, because everybody smoked. So <laughs> I always heard a lot of those nitrate fires were caused because somebody just put a cigarette down in the wrong place. Or sometimes just the the the, the lights, the backgrounds or foreground lights for regular film as well, like projectors, right. that the regular film would just poof up. So uh, there, you, there you have it. Phil, great question. Thank you. And ah, from Bell, will there be a character based on Flash? Well... Wow, that's amazing. Flash was a dear friend to me. The most, the closest I have right now to report on that is in the book, I did a lot of drawings of Flash, which will be in the book, you know, and, and he and I were great friends and I wrote Flash all the time and we talked together all the time. Like I say, I understood his language. And also I know that <clears throat> when my family moved from the farm, the hardest thing for me was to leave Flash behind. What will happen to him? So... I reasoned that probably he came in contact with another little boy or a little girl who wrote him and he listened to their dreams. So who knows? Who knows? I, I, there's a story there. And I, I think that was a great horse. I love the smell. Even to this, I love the smell of the horse when you're riding him. It's just a great smell. And it takes me back to my childhood. Yeah, there you have it. Bell, great question. Thank you. Yeah, what do we have next from Tom? Is there a difference in the process of animating a video game compared to a movie? Well, the big difference I can think of is you're working on the computer and that you're getting the character to move, which is a which is a model that's already inside the computer. So somebody has constructed the character inside the computer. So you don't have to deal with proportions. You don't have to deal with 
that look on the face, the expressions. You don't have to deal with any of that like you would in 2D. So what you do is you are pushing keys on the keyboard to try and get that puppet to move. So I tend to, and, and I don't mean this in any derogatory way, but I tend to think of 3D animation as puppeteering, hmm. not animation. Animation to me is exclusively you and the pencil and doing that. And I've watched the best. I mean, I stood behind Milk Call and, and John Lounsbury and Frank Thomas and everything and watched them do it. I mean, saw them actually drawing and, and watching them doing it and listened to what they tell me they were doing. So, you know, at that, I went, wow, that is really, really cool. I can do that. And so I would go away and try. And of course, I couldn't. But eventually, if I kept practicing and doing it long enough, the doors opened. Yes, absolutely. And uh, working on uh, going back to Dragon's Lair and uh, Space Ace, I imagine, you know, a feature or even a short is a linear story. But you all had to animate the choices. Dirk goes down the wrong thing. He gets <laughs> murdered in this cartoonish fashion. But... He goes down the right path and he moves on. So was a well, that, was, to... <laughs> that also is kind of a metaphor. It's a symbol of, you know, what we go through in life. And you go down the wrong street and you have to turn around and come back and go down another street because opportunity isn't behind all the streets. So we had done Secret and M. And Secret and M was acclaimed critically as very important. And, and it was, we were compared constantly to Disney. And then they said... It didn't make much money, so it looks like, and Disney was laughing. They said, you went out there, thought you were going to beat us. Ha, 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 you didn't. But along came a guy named Rick Dyer, and he came, he came in and said, I just looked at Secret and Nim. And he said, because of Secret and Nim, I want to do a video game, which would be brand new. No one's ever done one like that. We're looking at pictures, not pixels, not Pac-Man or Donkey Kong. I want to see what you did in Nim. I want to put that in my game. So we said, fine. And we said, where's the money? Because it can take money to do this. And he says, well, I'll have a little bit. And so money appeared from places I don't even know. In fact, one day it appeared in a paper bag. And it was about $10,000. And if you don't think we had a problem going to Bank of America and getting them to understand that that money was legit. So, but we, we managed to keep the salaries being paid for a long enough time to do the 20 minutes of animation. That's all it was. Then we flopped it. So it looked like you were looking at something new and different and everything. We flopped it. So we got 40 minutes out of 20 minutes. And then the technology was the big surprise. You could randomly access any moment on a laser disc. That way, if you failed to make the right move on the game, it randomly accessed you to a death node, we call it. And you watch people die in a humorous way. I think in later versions, I didn't have anything to do with sequels, but in later versions, they made a 3D Dragon's Lair game. And I, I went over and I watched and I said, you guys, this is not entertaining. It's not fun to watch. All you're doing is saying, look what I can do in 3D. And I said, that's not good enough. You're going to have to, but they said, you don't know what you're talking about. Go away. So I went away. And they, they made this 3D game that is a bit boring to watch. And I think that's the problem. You got to entertain people. That's the important thing. And and that's what it was. Arcade South Dakota, there was always one kid who was really good at the game. And it was like Fonzie, would walk on in. And there would be, always be a crowd around the arcade. We'd all watch him play. It's just like, I've never seen anybody go this far. Neither have I. It's like, <laughs> uh, you know, and... And long before the internet too, it's like you would have to hear through Harris, like the game ends like this, you know? And of course 
it'd always be uh, a, a wacky word of mouth, it, it, totally wrong. It's like, and then the Death Star shows up. Really? Yeah, it's a surprise. Like, so. Well, the other thing that we did with Dragon's Lairs, I know it's mainly uh, young men who are playing in, in the arcade. So we said, let's give them some eye candy. And that was uh, Daphne. So I remember Gary Goldman went out and bought a bunch of Playboy books, which I didn't have any of my own. So he came in and he brought me these books. He says, look at these women. Do you see this? That's Daphne. Now, what we did is we didn't have any money to make this game. So the, the lady who was our, our cleanup artist, her name is Vera Lamfer. Anyway, as she was the voice of Daphne. So we wrote a few lines for her because we couldn't afford lines for Dirk. So he just grunts and groans. And that was our editor who did that. Yeah. But Daphne just starts talking in a light little voice like, you know, to find the key. And she, <laughs> it was so much like her in real life that we just simply hooted about the whole thing. So we made her as sexy as we could for the traffic in those days. And you succeeded. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> And I still, and once in a while, I still see couples cosplaying as Dirk and Daphne. I, I, I see them at the shows, and it's it's delightful. It is, again, again, a creation that has absolutely stood the test of time, especially when you consider that it was not a feature. It's not like you can just randomly buy the disc and say, oh, let's, let's watch Dragon's Lair. It's still something that in its iterations you have to play. So, right. Again, there you go. Tom, great question. I think we have time for one more, so let's go out on a really fun one. And from Amethyst, do you have any advice for someone who wants to start drawing but is a little nervous to start? Okay, so that is a question that deals with self-confidence. And it seems to me that unless you believe, in, and I can say the word, the religious word was faith. You have to have faith in yourself. And you have to believe that if you have a gift or a talent to draw, and you, because of your own timidity, don't really practice it, then it'll never be yours. So I remember I wanted to take piano lessons and I went to a piano teacher who I thought was a really good teacher. And he said to me, he says, I will, I will teach you and I'll take you on as my student on one condition. You have to practice at least two hours a day. Now with all the farm chores and everything, two hours a day was hard to find. So I got up every morning at six o'clock got on the piano, annoyed everyone's still in bed, but got on the piano and practiced scales and everything. And then after school, I put in another hour. So the practicing, I think, is the point. First of all, if you believe that you have a gift and it's there, then you have to work for it. Nothing is free. You're not going to get good at anything by sitting and wishing it to be there because wishing is only a part of it. If you wish it strong enough, then you have to pick up the pencil, you have to exert energy, you have to put in the hours and do it. And when you put in the hours, something wonderful happens. And that seems to be a law of the whole universe for some reason. You know, you can't sit on your couch and expect the blue fairy to come in and touch you with a wand. Not going to happen. So you really have to work for what you want. That's a, that's a fact of life. And if you deny that fact... Of course, you'll never really be able to draw very well. But drawing is easy, and there's lots of books. I recommend a book by Preston Blair called How to Ad The Art of Animation. I think it's called. There's several titles, but Preston Blair is his name. He, he takes you through it and shows you how to construct drawings. Go get that book. Start copying what he shows you how to do. I learned how to draw by copying Disney comic books. Mm -hmm. And then I went and introduced some life drawing, which is absolutely without emotion. That's just you know anatomical. But then I went on and I said, I can, I want to draw 
and I wanted to draw characters that represent an emotion. And I would draw a character and I'd say, yes, that's it. That's it. I got a drawing that I love. I really love. And I put it on my desk. And every time I walk by it, I'd look at it. And I'd say, I still love it. It looks great. About three days later, I'd walk by it. And I said, that's a mess. That doesn't look good. So what happened? What happened that I suddenly didn't like it? And I think it's because the exercise of drawing that first drawing moved things around in your brain. So your brain then grew. And when your brain, when your brain grew and knew more, that drawing was now obsolete. So you had to go back, pick up the pencil and go on. And it's step by step, step by step, you know, you, you gain perfection. Ah, there you have it. Amethyst, that was a great question. Thank you so much. And best of fortune on your artistic journey. We really wish you well with that. And everyone else out there who aspires to be an artist of any kind. And on that, GalaxyCon viewers, this has been my time with Don Bluth. Don, as always, this has been an absolute delight. Any final <laughs> words for, for our audience before we take our leave? Yeah, you know what? I love teaching nowadays. So oh, there's a university that we have out here. So it's a, it's a good thing. If you get in that class, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just beat you up and make you good. I'm going to do everything I can. And the other thing is, I think you'll get some insights if you just pick up this book, pre-order it, because we expect that they're going to be out in no time and there won't be books there. So buy the book. You'll get to know me better. Write me a letter. <laughs> and there you have it. Oh, Don, it's been my absolute pleasure to serve you here once again. Once again, thank you for joining us on the GalaxyCon virtual stage. Thank you to our audience for joining us. And thank you for all those great questions. Hope to see everybody again soon. Until then, bye-bye, everyone. Take care. Happy holidays. And remember, smiles are free. Spend them often. <laughs>